Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. We are finishing or continuing our series, excuse me, uh, in uh, John. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 5, as was just read. And we're continuing our series that we're titling This Changes Everything, which is a look at the seven signs in the Gospel of John. And just as a quick reminder, I know I shared it the first week, I think Kevin shared it again last week, that John is calling them signs for a reason. He, he states at the end of his gospel that he intentionally includes these signs on purpose, that Jesus did many other things, but these signs in particular, he's including on purpose. And he says at the end of John 20, in verse 31, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the goal. That's why we have these signs, is to stir up in us a belief in Jesus, not just a belief in some sort of mental assent that, yeah, I believe he existed, but a belief to see him as the son of God, the Messiah, and that in so doing, we would have life in his name. That's the goal. So we're going to be in John 5 today. And as you're turning there in your, in your Bibles, if you haven't turned there yet, uh, you might notice a little bit of a glow on me, and that's still from the Super Bowl, because the Chiefs won the Super Bowl two weeks ago. And if you don't know, I'm a diehard Chiefs fan, grew up in Kansas City. And so, but here's one thing I know, people were asking me before the game, like, are you really fired up for the game? And I was very fired up for the game. Uh, I was even more fired up after the game, if you know what I'm saying. Um, great game. But in the end, what I did know is that the, the excitement that, that the, um, just the fulfillment that you feel in that moment would, would only last for so long. I knew that because we had won a few years ago and basically you kind of feel that euphoria for a little while as a fan and then kind of it begins to dwindle. I listen to a lot of sports talk because I drive a lot. So like it's cool for a week to like everybody be talking about how awesome your team is. And it's like, you know, you act like you won the Super Bowl, but I didn't really do anything. Uh, I did wear my, my shirt and my jacket that we haven't lost in since I got it. So I did do that. They can thank me for that later. But other than that, like I didn't do anything. And so what I found even three years ago is just like, it's exciting for a little while, but then eventually, you know, it kind of wears off. And you might be like, well, that's because you're a fan. Imagine if you played. Well, believe it or not, there are a few quotes I want to share with you about people who have played and would say something similar, that, that the fulfillment may only last a little while. Listen to Aaron Rodgers, and if you're a Green Bay fan, sorry, I have to say this. He's only won one Super Bowl, but here is what I reportedly uh, read that he had said this week. I didn't know this until this week. Here's what he said back in 2011. We just accomplished the most amazing goal in football, he said, but I'm sitting there with a semi-empty feeling because I accomplished everything I wanted to do when I was a kid and I kind of had a moment that I said to myself, is this it? Is there more to life than this? And if you're like, well, but he's only got one. Imagine if he had a few Super Bowl titles. Well, there is a guy who has the most. His name is Tom Brady. And on 60 minutes after Tom Brady won, I think it was his third or fourth Super Bowl, he gave this quote why do I have Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I think, God, it's got to be more than this. 
Now, I know some of you are here are like not football fans. This is the best time of year for you because no one else is talking about football except for me. And you think sports are trivial in a lot of ways, unless it's your livelihood, it probably kind of is. But I think we can all identify with a moment or multiple moments in our life when we just knew something would be more fulfilling than it actually ended up being. It, it left us kind of empty. It, it, it scratched an itch for a while only to find like, dadgum, it's itching already again. What is it about life that makes us desire wholeness while most of the time just feeling incomplete? Like with all our effort, we strive to feel and to do and to be fulfilled and we yet leave unfulfilled at a deep soul level. As we look at John 5 today, we aren't greeted with a man who's got a Super Bowl ring on a mountaintop. We're greeted, with a, we're greeted with a man in a dark valley. And yet, if you've lived life for long, you will know that neither the mountaintops or the valleys make you immune to the disillusionment that comes from a lack of fulfillment in life. So what might Jesus's third sign reveal to us that we may be transformed? Let's ponder the following thoughts from this text. Let's look at the numbness of false fulfillment. The numbness of false fulfillment. And let's look at and consider a reorienting question. But let's also examine a disorienting question because they're both there. And then let's look at the rest that is offered to the unfulfilled. It's a lot and we'll do it together. The numbness of false fulfillment, a reorienting question, a disorienting question, and then finish with the rest that is offered to the unfulfilled. John opens the story by setting up the scene where we see this sign take place. And here's what he says, starting in verse one. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and at which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. So here's what we know. Like this comes right after what Kevin preached last week, after the, uh, the healing of the official son. Chapter five, verse one is the very next verse. So we know that it is sometime later, sometime after the last sign. We don't know how long after, we just know it was sometime after. And we know that the setting is in Jerusalem. Jesus has left Galilee where he turned water into wine, where he healed the official son. And now he is headed into Jerusalem for some kind of festival. We don't know what festival that it was. We are not told, but we do know that because there's a festival, you have many Jews in town, in Jerusalem, that have traveled from afar, that have come in for the festival. This is becoming a more public scene for Jesus. And it's not just the festival in Jerusalem. He finds himself at a pool. Now, this pool was a popular pool. It was popular for invalids, those who could not walk. It said the, blame, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed, they are gathered around this pool. Now, why is that? Why is this pool so popular, we wonder? Well, 
You may have noticed, and I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but you may have noticed that there's no verse 4 in most of your Bibles. Because the older manuscripts that have been found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and whatnot actually didn't have verse 4. So for a lot of your translations, if you're reading NIV, ESV, NASB, if you're reading any of those, you'll see a footnote for what was originally verse 4. And this is what it says in the NIV. This is what was there. And I think you can get, you'll see in a minute from verse 7, there's a lot of credibility to this. Here's what he said. Here's what was originally written or was written in older translations. They've waited for the moving of the waters, these, these invalids. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. Now, this is a belief of theirs, a, a legend. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now, you might be like, okay, well, if it wasn't in the original, okay, that's fine. But verse seven, from what we'll see in a minute, but the way the invalid responds to Jesus, it seems as though this is what he believed. That those invalids that waited around this pool were waiting for it to be stirred up by some supernatural angel. They're, you know, it's stirred up, it's disturbed. They're checking the wind, there's no wind. This is a supernatural event and the first one in the pool will be healed. That's what they believe. And ironically, the pool had a name, Bethesda, which means house of mercy. And the reason I say it's ironic because these disabled people all around the pool hoped to find mercy in this pool, but it doesn't seem very merciful to make it a race among cripples and blind to see who could be made well. But a house of mercy, it was called nonetheless. And you see, there was an expectation of fulfillment at this pool. The house of mercy pool was expected to give you a shot at maybe being made well. Maybe, just maybe, you could be made whole. You see, this expectation begins to evaporate and the fulfillment begins to evaporate because you have these invalids collected there, not knowing when it might be stirred, not knowing like how they might get in there first. It's not really a hopeful scene. It's a sad scene. It's a broken scene. After enough time, And after enough disillusionment, brokenness, well, it makes you numb. You ever been there? Ever had wave after wave after wave of disappointment hit you? Like at the beach with the big waves, as soon as you get up from one, you're pummeled by another. Ever felt that with life? Have you ever felt so unfulfilled with life that you stopped feeling or wanted to stop feeling? You can imagine the man in our story felt that way because verse five says he'd been an invalid for 38 years. Now, no shame. How many in here are younger than 38? Okay, good, good crew. How many of you can remember 38 years ago? 
I was alive 38 years ago, but I was four. So I don't have much memory from that. But you can imagine 38 years, some of, some of you, many of you longer than your life. This man has been unable to walk. Can you imagine the despair he must have felt? We don't know how old he is. We don't know how long he's been at the pool. But can you imagine the despair it must have taken to consistently not make it to the pool? To consistently be let down, to, to stare at the waters, almost trying to will them to move, waiting, waiting for a, stir, for a stirring and maybe having this game plan like I'm gonna roll right and try to somersault or how, how am I gonna get there first and you just never make it. This would make a person numb. But you don't have to be an invalid for 38 years to feel the numbness of disillusionment, right? My guess is that all of us have sensed this at some point in our life. Some lack of fulfillment in your life has made you numb. My question for you this morning right now is this. What is the pool in your life? What's your pool? What has your gaze and your focus for fulfillment? What are you hoping in for wholeness in your life? Like if you're single, is it marriage? If you're married people in here, you're like, ha, 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 ha. Marriage is great. It's a gift from God. But if that's what you're waiting on for fulfillment, you will be disillusioned. If you're married, is it kids? If you're married with kids in here, you're going, <laughs> kids are amazing. They are a gift from God. But they won't lead to the type of fulfillment that you're looking for. If you're in high school, is it just to graduate? Like, I just want to get out of school. If you're in college, is it, man, I just want to graduate. I just want to get out of school. I want to get to my career. I want to make that money. And let me just tell you, that is great. And there are certain benefits to that. But in four weeks, I will not have a spring break unless I take vacation. The reality is that at every stage of life, maybe for you, it's like, I'm ready for grandchildren. You're that parent that's like, are y'all, when, when, when we coming? When's this coming? I'm ready to retire. I'm ready to kiss some grandkids. There's always a stage in life that we're looking to the next thing for fulfillment. What is your pool? What has your gaze? Do you really think It'll be the thing that finally fulfills you. For this invalid, he's been waiting for wholeness and healing in the pool, and yet here he is still unfulfilled, numb, and into that scene steps Jesus. Yet, as I've read this and studied this for this sermon for a while now, I cannot get over the way that he engages. Jesus enters this house of mercy and goes directly to this man and asks him a re 
orienting question. Verse six, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Jesus knows this man's story. He knows he's been an invalid for 38 years. And notice the similarities that we have between this, and if you're familiar with it, and Kevin hinted to it last week as well, the woman at the well in Samaria in John 4. Jesus knew her story as well. But how did he begin his encounter with her? With a reorienting question. Will you give me a drink? Now, that may be like, that doesn't seem quite as reorienting as do you want to get well? But in that culture, that was a very socially odd thing for Jesus to ask of a Samaritan woman. Like, you know that person in your life that's socially awkward? Like for, for a lot of people in my life, that's me. Like I just make odd jokes to waiters and make my children blush. You know that person's socially awkward? Like they're always overstepping social lines just to be funny or to be... Jesus isn't doing it to be funny, but he is socially awkward. He is constantly not concerned with social boundaries and he's overstepping them. And to be his follower, you gotta be like, oh my gosh, does he, does he know he shouldn't be talking to her? Does, did he really just walk up to this guy who's, who's laying by the pool to be healed and ask him if he really wants to be made well? You see, a woman broken by false fulfillment with multiple marriages and relationships in John 4 and a man broken by suffering and false fulfillment of a lack of healing at the magic pool in John 5. Both find themselves though in the presence of the Messiah, having dialogue with the Messiah and all of which was initiated not by them, but by Jesus himself. Why? Because when the brokenness and lack of fulfillment of this world makes you numb, sometimes you need a shock treatment back into reality. So Jesus initiates. And as is his custom, he initiates with a reorienting question, do you want to get well? And this is the response of the invalid, verse seven. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, this is an interesting response because I think you can read it two ways and I wouldn't, I would actually, and I'm about to argue that I don't know that you have to read, I think you could read it both ways and they could both be true. Like in one way, it's almost as if he's explaining like, did you really ask me that? Did you really just ask me, do I wanna, get, I'm sitting by this pool, yes. I want to be made well. I just can't get there in time. It seems awfully cruel for you to ask me if I want to be made well when the pool's right there. Do you not see I can't walk? Yes, I want to be made well, but I can't get someone to get me there. And I think that leads to the second way you could read this, which is more that he's saying like, I have no one to help me get in the pool when it's stirred. Will you help me get in the pool? Will you pick me up? What, what, are, you, are you offering, oh, oh my gosh, are you offering to take me and put me in the pool? And what's so interesting is that Jesus is reorienting him to new possibilities. He's, 
so focused on the pool. This crippled man can only see one option that he's ever dared to hope for, the pool. And here in the midst of the large crowd of invalids, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, approaches a man who's been suffering for 38 years. And all this man can seem to make sense of Jesus' question is a request for him into the same false fulfillment he's been seeking for days, if not years on end. See, the irony of these invalids' lack of understanding of their need of mercy is not that they don't get it. They're at the house of mercy for a reason. Physical ailments kind of make you aware of your need for mercy pretty quick. The irony is not that they don't understand their need of mercy. The irony is their lack of understanding of their source of mercy. They looked to the pool at the house of mercy when the man of mercy was in their midst. C.H. or Charles Haddon Spurgeon says it like this, a multitude of needy people were there, yet none of them looked to Jesus. A blindness had come over these people at the pool. There they were, and there was Christ who could heal them, but not a single one of them sought him. Their eyes were fixed on the water, expecting it to be troubled. They were so taken up with their own chosen way that the true way was neglected. Brother or sister, is there a situation in your life that you're just hoping Jesus can assist you in? Is it like you have these good ideas, like here's how, this is, this is how it's gonna get fixed. This is how it's gonna work. Jesus, I'm coming to you because I need you to, to kind of be the, the linchpin in this operation. Like if it's your marriage, are you coming to Jesus? Like I need you to fix it. I need you to fix my spouse. I need you to fix this problem in our marriage. Do you come to Jesus about your kids' lives? I need you to fix them. They just don't see. Do you come, like Jesus, I'd love for you to come into my life and, and fix my parents. But they just don't understand what it's like to be me. They don't understand what life is like for a kid in this day and age. Is it your friends at school? Like, Jesus, I need new friends. Is it a relationship? Jesus, I, I, I went too far with my boyfriend or my girlfriend, and now I need you to make this work because I've already gone past the point of no return. Will you, will you make this relationship work? Is it your major? Like, Lord, I just need you to bless what I've chosen to do with my life. Is it your dreams? I need you to bless this business I've started. I need you to bless me with this vacation home. What is it? What situation in your life are you hoping for Jesus to assist you in? And what if Jesus is not asking how he can help you get what you want? What if Jesus is asking you a more reorienting question by going to the root? Look at me. Do you want me to make you well? And all we can see is he's standing between me and the pool. This is what Jesus does. He makes broken people whole. He makes disillusioned people fulfilled. And we can believe that he can do that for us today because we see him do this in John. Verse eight, Jesus says this. Then Jesus said to him, get up, 
pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Three commands that an hour before, that 10 years before, that 25 years before would have seemed impossible. Three commands, get up, pick up your mat and walk are now a reality without the pool, but with the man of mercy. This is precisely what happened in a moment. Get up your mat, pick up your mat and walk. Jesus engages him with a reorienting question and then gives him a reorienting result. And the reality is like, this sounds like a really good ending to the story. And it would be. Except there's another question that's asked, but this time it's not the Jew, it's not Jesus asking the question, it's the Jewish leaders. End of verse nine, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well, notice he tells him he was healed. The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him this orienting question, not who made you well? Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. This is a disorienting question. The Jewish leaders are not in awe of this man of 38 years being healed. They are in anguish because he's carrying his mat. Does that strike any of you like, what? And before you think, well, maybe they didn't know he was healed and maybe they just thought he was breaking Sabbath. He, he explains to them that the man who healed me told me to pick it up and walk. Can you imagine how disorienting this would be for this healed person? You just got healed in a miraculous way. Like the man who healed you just kind of disappears into a crowd. You're overcome by the ability to walk for the first time in nearly 40 years. Then you head out into the festival. There's throngs of people everywhere celebrating God, a festival, carrying your mat. And the next thing you know, you're reprimanded by those in charge and the temple. And to be clear, like we're not advocating breaking God's law. This is not breaking God's law. Nothing in the scriptures prohibited someone to carry their own mat on Sabbath. This was an addition by the Jewish leaders to the Sabbath laws. You see, the Jewish leaders misunderstood what God intended by the Sabbath all the way back to Exodus when he laid out the Sabbath and what it meant to keep it holy. They, they misunderstood it. They were concerned with physical work and exertion because God doesn't work on the Sabbath. He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, his people should not work on the Sabbath. It's the logic that they use. And they still use it today, Orthodox Jews. Jenny Beth and I were blessed enough to actually get to go to Israel in 2017. It's an amazing trip if you can go. I was that guy that was kind of arrogant. I was like, I don't need to go to Israel to be close to God. 
And then I showed up, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And you don't need to go to Israel, by the way, to be close to God. But to, to walk where Jesus had walked, to see these places where these things that I've read my whole life happened was mind-blowing, but that's not the point. So we're there, and while we're in Jerusalem, it happens to be a Friday. Friday night is when Sabbath starts for Orthodox Jews. Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown is what they call Shabbat, which is Sabbath. And we were told from the jump, like when you get here Friday, it's gonna be a little different Friday night. If I remember right, maybe correct me, even I think even our food was a little different because they weren't gonna cook in the, in the typical way that they would cook. And then you go to the elevator and they let you know, like, this is not a reenactment of Elf. It is really gonna open at every floor, right? You're like, Elf's doing that whole thing. And he's like, ah, oh. that's what happens in the hotel. Every single floor, the door opens, the door shuts. Why? So that you don't press the button. It's amazing that the way the Orthodox Jews view Sabbath is still the same. And as I was studying for this, I read a story from April of 1992 where tenants let three apartments in an Orthodox neighborhood in Israel burn to the ground. Why? Because they were asking the rabbi whether a telephone call to the fire department on the Sabbath would violate Jewish law. Observant Jews are forbidden to use the phone on the Sabbath because doing so would break an electrical current, which is considered a form of work. So in the half hour it took the rabbi to decide, yes, it would break the Sabbath, the fire spread to two neighboring apartments. Three apartments burned to the ground. A man has never walked for 38 years and has walked and he's reprimanded for carrying his mat. Is this what God intended that even the broken made whole can only happen on certain days of the week. This is religious fervor without knowledge. They desire to honor God, but it is religious fervor without knowledge. This is keeping man-made laws while neglecting God's law of justice and mercy. And that's why David Guzik says this, to the religious leaders, Jesus was the man who broke the Sabbath. To the healed man, Jesus was the man who made me well. It's a disorienting way of looking at life. In their defense of their additional Sabbath rules, the Jewish leaders were missing the point of the Sabbath. But more importantly, they were missing the Lord of the Sabbath. But do you see who else is missing seeing Jesus for who he is? The healed man was. You see, it would, it would appear that he saw Jesus as the man who made him well, and he did. But what the healed man didn't know was that his deepest need for fulfillment was still left unaddressed. So Jesus, in his lavish grace, finds the healed man a second time. And in so doing, I think he gives us the deepest clue into where this sign is actually pointing to. Verse 14, later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now we don't, we don't really like that if we're honest. 
it seems to imply that his previous disability was possibly in relation to some sin in his life. And I will admit that that is an inference that we are making. I don't think this is making that abundantly clear that he is saying that the previous disability was from sin, but rather that if you continue sinning, you will face something worse. And here's what we know, though, that sometimes sin does cause suffering, but not all the time. Not all, I think I said this back in Jonah, not all suffering and difficulty is caused by sin. Let me say that again. Not all the suffering and difficulty that you will face in your life is caused by sin. We do live in a broken world, but I do want us to make sure that we do get all sin does cause suffering and difficulty in some way. Sin is not benign. It's malignant. And here's what I think we need to see. is not like, oh, did that disability stem from his sin? What Jesus is, is trying to show him and is trying to show us as he initiates again, this time Jesus moves from addressing his need for physical wholeness and addresses his need for spiritual wholeness. Interestingly, Jesus says a life of continuous sin will cause suffering worse than being an invalid for 38 years. Worse? Like in, our, in America, in our society, we probably can't think of anything worse, hardly, than not being able to walk, to, to, be, in, to be totally dependent on someone else for 38 years. If I go somewhere, I'm driving my car just so I can leave when I want. 38 years, no walking, and you're telling me there's something worse? that can happen to me. But that is the deceitfulness of sin. You see, sin disillusions us from seeing reality. Sin distorts our relationships. Look at me. I want you to hear this because I believe it's true and I've seen it in my life. Sin paralyzes your heart. It paralyzes you, not maybe from here down, but it paralyzes your heart. And Jesus is showing us that what he has come to do is much bigger than healing the lame with much more serious implications because physical fulfillment alone will not connect to your deepest need. Jesus didn't find him to fulfill his need for the pool. Jesus found him to address the paralyzation of the sin in his heart. And Jesus takes the moment to encourage this healed man to pursue holiness in his wholeness. And he initiates you and I the same way 2,000 years later. He has come to set us free from lives full of sin seeking and instead to bring us to fulfilling rest. This is how John closes the story. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Verse 17, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at, at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, 
Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Brothers and sisters, the way Jesus brings fulfilling rest to you and I is by being at work. By being at work. What does that mean? Don't you know that the root of your restlessness that you and I feel, that the root of our lack of fulfillment that we feel is actually our endeavor to find it outside of its source. We are looking for rest and fulfillment and mercy outside of the source of rest and fulfillment and mercy. We are working to find rest by pushing back against the rest giver so that we can have autonomy. It's a famous sermon Example, so I will use it. I think I've used it already once. But we are like a fish that is like, I do not want to swim in water. My truth, my truth is I like the air. I'm going to flop upon this dock and I'm going to live my best life for about 15 seconds. The origination of sin and disillusionment was a belief that fulfillment is found outside of God's presence and plan rather than inside it. And this perpetual work of ours, seeing life outside of, or seeking life outside of the life giver makes us numb and eventually it erodes the fabric of our life. The way into rest and fulfillment is actually submission. It's trusting Jesus to do the work that we cannot to make us whole. You see, the essence of Christianity is not a God that we work towards, trying to keep a long list of rules so that we might get accepted by him. Every other religion or faith system that has ever existed has some sort of way to teach you this is how you get to the divine. This is the journey that it takes. This is the bar that you have to hit. God accepts you if you're worthy by doing these things. But the God of Christianity, the God of the scripture says, I will work so that you will find rest. And that's why George H. Morrison says it is profound. He says, in some ways, it is strange that the God of the Bible is a working God. In the old world, it was, hardly an, it was hardly an honorable thing to work. It was a thing for slaves and serfs and strangers, not for, freedom, not for freedmen. Hence, work and greatness rarely went together. And nothing could be more alien to the genius of paganism than a toiling God. It was a revolution when Jesus taught God loves, but it was hardly less revolutionary when he taught God works. From the beginning, God has been at work, sustaining the universe, bringing about redemption of the ungodly and making whole what we broke 
by our sinful rebellion. And Jesus shows up on the scene calling God his father and putting himself equal with God as the one who works that we can find rest in the soul. Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. You see, the only way that you and I can actually pursue a life that's not bound by sin, the only way you and I can experience rest and fulfillment in this life is to find life not in your name and achievements. And it's to not find life in your own way of doing life, but it's to find life in the name of the working God and his name is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And you may find life in his name. He is the way. He's the truth. And he's the life. Do you want to find rest and be fulfilled? Do you want to be made well? Come to Jesus. And that's the call to action. It just depends on where you are in your walk with Jesus. Like if you're in the room and you're not a follower of Jesus, I mean, you might believe mentally that he's real, but you're not following Jesus. If if that's you, The call to action is to come to Jesus. Now, I wanna be clear, in the South, when you say that, it's a negative thing. Oh, we're gonna have a come to Jesus meeting. We all need to come to Jesus meeting. But it's not so he can beat us behind the woodshed. It's so that he can bestow his lavish rest into our hearts. If, if you are here today and you are not following Jesus, would you come to Jesus to find rest, to find fulfillment in your soul, in the deepest part of who you are? And if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you just to examine the terms you've come to Jesus under. Did you come to him so he could help you into your pool? Is he a means to an end in your life? Like maybe you have authentic faith in him, but you're treating him more like a genie, more like a magic pool or someone that can get you where you really want to go. Examine the terms that you've come to Jesus under. And then the second thing I would encourage you to as a follower of Christ is to ask the Holy Spirit to revive your heart and to reveal in your heart the sources of fulfillment that you're looking for that are leaving you dry. See, the enemy wants to blind us from actually seeing reality, but the spirit wants to reveal to us, this is, this is your pool. This is where your real hope is. Come to Jesus. 
Because wherever you are in the room, Jesus is standing between you and your pool. And he's initiating to you, do you want me to make you well? May he do it. Let's spend a moment asking the spirit to reveal next steps for us. We will pray and then we will sing and there will be people from the prayer team down here. There is no rush. Deal with the Lord. Let him deal with you and respond in obedience. Our Father, we, we're in awe of who you are. But sometimes that awe, as Jed said earlier, that, that flame becomes an ember. Would you light our fire? anew and afresh. Would you take these words that we've read from your scripture? Would you take these words that we sing and would you light them on fire? Would you open our eyes, spirit, to where we are seeking fulfillment apart from you? And let us reorder our heart in a way in which you now are the centerpiece, the fire. Would you help us to see Jesus for who he is? Would he not walk into our midst as we're staring for other things at fulfillment and totally miss him? Would we see him? Would we worship would we be transformed? Would we find rest? Spirit, would you help us? In Jesus' name, amen.